Well, if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, verse 1. On Wednesday nights, we're looking in depth from our weekend study. So we're going to study one whole verse tonight, verse 1. And you may want to put a finger in 2 Samuel 12 and also uh, Luke uh, 18. Here's our target verse for the evening. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whomever you are who judge. From whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. I drive uh, to the church uh, south on Academy from our house. And in the wintertime on Sunday mornings, there's just this intense glare that comes from the sun. Almost to the point where it's difficult to see if the stoplight is red or green. There's been several accidents that I've seen over the years. One time I got rear-ended. I was stopped at a red light and the guy behind me, he, he didn't see that it was a red light or see that I was even uh, there. But I, I'm blinded. You're, you're literally blinded just in those few weeks by this morning sun heading south on Academy. And what we're going to find in this verse tonight is there's those that are blinded by their own sin. The blinders are on. And in their heart, they're this, this critical moralist. And I think it can even tie into what we were, were just talking about. We can know truth. And in this place of, of knowing truth, we can find ourselves pointing the finger at everyone else and not seeing the sin in our own lives. And, and a gospel view, a gospel understanding is realizing our own sin first. The theme of this section of the book of Romans is that for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in this discussion of all sinning and falling short of the glory of God, we should put ourselves first. For I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I know that I've sinned. I know that I've fallen short. I know that I desperately need the love and the forgiveness and the grace of God. Who Paul is really pointing out here in Romans chapter 2 is the Pharisees and the Jews and the Hebrews. They're, they're not like those mentioned in Romans chapter 1 where they're atheists, where they don't acknowledge God. There isn't this reverence of God. In fact, they have this high view of God and the truth of, of who God is. But they found themselves trusting in themselves instead of trusting in the gospel. They were religious and had this high moral ground thinking that they can achieve salvation based on their own works instead of God's grace. And so Paul writes and says, therefore you are inexcusable man for whatever you who are to judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. So quick to offer judgment and bringing this condemnation upon others, but in their life, they're practicing the same thing. So I want to look at uh, several places in Scripture tonight that point out the same truth, this, this same principle of us judging others, but failing to see uh, the plank in our own eye. So if you would turn with me over to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and then jump down to verse uh, 15. Jesus addresses this issue of, of judging. 
Matthew 7, verse 1. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? So that's a verse 3. We'll, we'll pick up there in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 7. Now let's just back up to verse 1. Verse 1 is really good. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So God says, if you don't want to be judged, then don't judge others. Don't be in this position where you're condemning others. And we'll talk about the difference between judgment and discernment in, in just a moment. But in that whatever way that you judge someone else, you're going to be on the receiving end of that. So if we're always critical of others, putting other people down, pointing out their sin, condemning them, then we're going to be on that receiving end as well. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for you shall obtain mercy. Oftentimes, we love mercy in our lives, but we expect judgment in other people's life. (laughs) You know, I love mercy in my life. I want God's mercy. I want you to be merciful to me, but I'm going to hold you at a really high standard. Then we get to verse 3. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't consider the plank in your own eyes? So we can see so clearly what's wrong in somebody else's life. We, we can see just that, that speck that, that's in their eye, but we're missing the plank in our own eye. And that's what's happening with the religious critical moralist that Paul is writing to in Romans chapter two, is here they are quick to judge the speck in, in everybody else's eye, but they can't see their own sin. They, they can't see their own plank. And by focusing on the speck in everyone else's eye, they're failing to see their own sin. And that's the blinder, that's the blinder. And if we're not careful, we can look at all that's wrong in culture and all that's wrong in our, our laws and point those, those, those things out, which, like I mentioned, I think there's a place for. But if we fail to see the sin in our own lives, we, we've missed it. That Jesus is the solution for us, and Jesus is the solution for a sinful world. He, he loves those, those around us. We can really struggle in relationships. We can, we can struggle in marriage. We can struggle with our kids. And we can struggle having meaningful friendships. And we're, we're like, well, what's wrong? Well, because I haven't realized the plank in my own eye. And, and here I am trying to remove the speck in, in my brother's eye, but I've got this plank. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I mean, imagine this. This is pretty humorous. You're going in to help your brother or sister in Christ with that speck, that little sliver that's in their eye, but you've got a plank in your own eye, and you're getting close to them, and you're like, and you're just whapping them around. They're like, why are you beating up on me, right? It's like, I'm trying to get this this speck. Well, well, don't you see that big plank coming out of your own eye? What are you talking about? I I don't have a plank. You're the one with the problem, (laughs) I'm not the one with the problem. Is there anything wrong with desiring to see the speck come out of your brother's eye? No. That's loving. 
That's what brothers and sisters in Christ do. You know, we you help each other out. We, we serve each other. There's no problem with trying to address that, spe- that speck in our brother or sister's eye. The problem is we've got to deal with the plank first. And once we deal with the plank first, then we're able to see accurately the speck in our brother's or our sister's eye. But if we don't start with our own sin... It's all going to be messed up, isn't it? It's all going to be jacked up. So as we think about our Christian life, our our worldview, and how we relate to God and others, I want to be first and foremost concerned with my own sin, not with the sin of others. I want to look introspectively, not looking out into my family, out into the body of Christ, out into culture. I want to make sure that I'm not missing that plank that's in my, my own eye before I had to go to deal with that speck in my brother's eye. Because if we're aware of our own sinfulness, if we're aware of that plank that's in our own eye, we're coming in a spirit of meekness, desiring restoration, not a judgmental spirit. See the difference? It's I, I'm a sinner that God is saved by grace. I'm in process. I don't have everything figured out. And I'm coming alongside of you in that humility and that tenderness. Because when you're dealing with someone's eye, man, that's sensitive stuff, isn't it? When I was in school ministry years ago in, in Southern Oregon, part of this school ministry was we learned how to build cabins to try to have a trade to support yourself. So building this cabin out in Southern Oregon, and I just get this sawdust in my eye and it's just scratching on my eyeball and it's getting worse and worse and then my eyes swelling up and Jim Wright the pastor of the school ministry is finally like well we need to take you to the ER and they flushed it out and and sure enough that speck came out and it felt felt so much much better right but I don't really like people messing with my eyes you think about LASIK surgery I'm nearsighted I I can't see far away so when, when I forget my glasses I can read my Bible, but I don't know how you're responding to the message. Sometimes it's helpful, quite honestly. <laughs> I think about getting LASIK, right? But you got to have lasers on your eyeballs. It's like, I don't know. Like, if someone's messing with my eyes, I, I want them to be gentle. And when we go to deal with someone else's sin, we, we want to do it in gentleness. In Galatians 6.1 says, brethren... If a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So I think as we look to address sin, first in our own lives and then in the lives of others, there's some filters that we want to run it through. Am I being gentle? Am I being gentle? And then the next question is, am I dealing with a believer or an unbeliever? Because a lot of times we expect that unbelievers are going to have the same commitment to truth that believers do. Of course not. They don't know Jesus. They're in darkness. And so if they're not a believer, I want to approach them in gentleness with the most important issue in view. And that's that they would know Jesus. That they would know Jesus and him crucified. And then if they're a believer, they're committed to truth. But I want to approach them in that spirit of, of, of gentleness. One thing that clears up a question for us is when we jump down to verse 15 and we go to verse 20, is a lot of people think, well, 
don't judge, then that means we can never make a call on anything, right? You can never say if something is true or false. You can't identify if if someone's a false prophet or a true teacher. And, And Jesus clears that up for us in verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So God is asking us to make a decision of discernment for the purpose of identification, which is different than condemnation. I'm not condemning you to hell. Only God can can do that. But I can identify if you're a false teacher or not. And Jesus warned about false teachers The apostles, disciples warned about false teachers. And and false teachers will come around wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep. They sound like sheep. They act like sheep. They baa like sheep. But they don't eat like sheep. Instead of eating grass, they're eating other sheep, right? And so you need to be able to watch behavior and say, that is definitely a wolf's in sheep's clothing. Examine the fruit. Identify the fruit. And and Jesus is saying a tree is going to be true to its nature. An apple tree is going to produce apples. So is there the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. Are they pointing to Jesus Christ and him crucified? Is it sound doctrine? Do you find it in the life of Jesus? Do you find it in the book of Acts and in the epistles? And we're finding more and more teaching, quote unquote, that doesn't line up with who Jesus is. It doesn't line up with the book of Acts. It doesn't line up with the epistles. And so we've got to be discerning. So, so don't think that this idea of not judging is that you just check, check your brain at the door and you don't discern for truth. Absolutely, you discern for truth and identification, but we're not in a place of, of condemning people and saying, well, this person's going to hell. That, that's God's uh, business to do. We're looking at our own sin and then dealing with people in, in gentleness. So can you think of a couple groups of people or a couple individuals in scripture that had the plank in their eye and couldn't see accurately? I think of one. It's King David. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 David's got the, the speck in his eye at this point. This is 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, But the poor man had nothing except one ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him, with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take 
from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wearing, wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Here it is, verse 5. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. He shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The just punishment was restitution fourfold. He should have repaid with four lambs. But David says, no, this guy deserves to die. He's angry. He's upset. He's condemning. He's harsh. In verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives in your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the command of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Isn't that convicting? God says, if that wasn't enough, all you had to do was ask. I gave all this to you, David, and I was willing to give more if you would have just asked. But instead, you decided that you had to take things into your own hands and and have relationship with Bathsheba and kill Uriah. You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. And that's exactly what happened. Absalom uh, fulfilled this, unfortunately. For you did in secret... For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed, you have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And the child who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. David's response, I have sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. This is the moment for David where the blinders come off, where he becomes aware of his own sin. Prior to this, he's judging others. He's judging this man in the story. And God in his love for David, God in his passionate pursuit of David, cares for him enough to reveal a sin to him. And thankfully, David had a soft enough heart to acknowledge his sin before the Lord. And if you're taking notes, this is where Psalms 51 come in and Psalms 32. They're beautiful Psalms of David's repentance and restoration. Why is this such an important Bible study? Because God wants to reveal each of us our own sin to us so that we can understand his grace and forgiveness in a greater way and our fellowship with God can be restored. Isn't that beautiful? What's at stake for David in these times was he wasn't enjoying that fellowship with God. 
So if we're here on our moral high ground, pointing the finger at everybody else, not realizing our own sin, ultimately our sin is keeping us from the kind of fellowship that God would desire to have with us. And David writes in Psalms 51, out of this experience with Nathan the prophet, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Do you ever feel that way? You ever have those moments with the Lord where God in his love is exposing our sin? And Lord, forgive me, I've sinned before you. And create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a a steadfast spirit in me. Here I was thinking I was uh, so right, but I've got this plank in my own eye. It's been hurting my relationship with you and hurting relationship with others. God, forgive me and restore me. And thankfully, God has the the power to be able to to do that, to restore unto us the, the joy of our salvation and uphold that generous spirit within us. So let's turn to Luke 18. Turn with me over to to Luke 18 and we see another example of an individual that has the plank in his eye and he can't see accurately the Lord and, and relationships. Luke 18. This is Luke 18 verse 9. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Who do you think that it probably is? The Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes. Who was Jesus most hard on in his earthly ministry? It was the scribes and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees started off well. They're this small group that wanted to fulfill the law. That set themselves apart to fulfill the law. But they got completely off track because they started trusting in themselves, in their own works. And they actually considered themselves to be righteous. And this resulted in actually despising others. If we get the message of Romans 1, 2, and 3, it's that we're sinners. The depth of our depravity, the depth of our sin before God. But we don't stop there. We go a little bit further And that Jesus died for our sins and we're justified freely by his grace. I hope so much you don't leave Rocky Mountain Calvary in the next two or three weeks. If you're kind of at that place where you're like, I'm thinking about finding a new home church, just wait till we get to Romans 4 verse 1. Because I don't want you to, to leave RMC until you hear the end of Romans 3. It's all this bad news before we get to the good news. But for us to understand the good news, we've got to believe in our hearts, man, I'm not righteous. I need a savior. I'm a sinner. I needed a savior before I knew Christ. I need a savior since I've been saved. There there hasn't been a, a day of my life without sin. And I desperately need the great grace of God. So this group, however, though, they considered themselves to be righteous. So so two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Can't you just hear him real loud? Other people can hear. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector. 
He had the boldness to like point out the guy next to him and go, man, Lord, I I just want to thank you so much for your grace in my life that I'm not like this wretch over to my left, you know, this, this tax collector. And tax collectors did things wrong. Most of them, history, history tells us. A lot of them were even Jews working for the Roman Empire. If you owed $500 in tax, they may charge you 1000 in tax and keep 500 for for themselves. There, there's no doubt that the tax collectors were, were sinful, but so was the Pharisee. Just because the Pharisee went to church and the Pharisee memorized scripture and the Pharisee tithed, doesn't mean that there wasn't sin in the heart of the Pharisee. As we talked about this weekend, God judges our actions, but he also judges our hearts, our thoughts, our, our attitudes, and we're all guilty before the Lord. But this Pharisee didn't see this. I mean, he definitely was in this place of feeling smug about himself in his own works. And it's because he was comparing himself with others instead of comparing himself to God's holiness. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says this, for do we For we dare not classify ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You may find some room to feel pretty good about yourself if you compare yourself with someone else. You can always find somebody that's quote unquote worse and then start feeling like, man, I'm pretty good. But once we compare ourselves to the Lord, to his holiness, to his perfection, we very quickly realize that that we're a sinner. I fast twice a week. I got to tell you, I I was impressed when I read that. I mean, twice a week, giving up food, twice a week to pray. that's, That's pretty impressive. I give tithes of all that I possess. The Gospels talk about the Pharisees even tithing on their herbs, their gardens. Okay, got to make sure to give 10% of my mint to the Lord. Here's my thyme. Tithing on my thyme, thyme unto the Lord, right? Just every little part of their life. But here's the second man, the tax collector. And the tax collector standing afar off. He, He felt so out of place. He didn't even feel like he could come into the general assembly. He, he was an outcast. He, he's standing afar off. Would not as much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you ever felt that, just that weight of your sin, where, where it affects your body, where your, your body is feeling that, that conviction and you, and you just can't help. You're like, man, I just, I just can't believe that this is what I've done and this is who I am. And, and Holy Spirit, you're revealing this in my heart and it hurts, but it's beautiful at the same time. And, and God, I don't have any room to come before you except based on your mercy, except based upon your grace. God, be merciful to me. Because I'm a, a sinner. That's salvation. The circumstances are different, but that's how we came to know the Lord. We are broken over our sin and believe that 
Jesus died for our sin and rose again, that God would be merciful and gracious uh, to us. In verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, declared righteous, just as though he's never sinned, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This ties back into Romans 2 verse 1. If we're so busy judging others and not seeing the sin in our own lives, we're going to miss it. But if we humble ourselves before the Lord, then we're going to be exalted. Humbling ourselves before the Lord is just not a one-time deal. It's not when we receive Christ as our Savior only, but continually walking before the Lord in humility. God, be merciful to me. I'm, I'm a sinner. God, you know my heart. I know my heart. And Lord, would you be merciful to me? I'm not even going to begin to go before you and try to ask what I deserve uh, from, from the Lord. Let's end tonight in Psalms 139. I'll read it to you. To make this our prayer before the Lord. Psalms 139, verse 23 and 24. It's a really cool psalm. The psalmist expressed how much the Lord knows us. He knows the words we're going to speak before we say them. He, he knows when we're going to rise and when we're going to sit. He thinks about us more than the sands of the sea. He knows us. And in light of this knowledge that God has of us, there's this prayer that the psalmist gives and says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What the psalmist is expressing is humility, realizing that he has blind spots. Realizing that there's wickedness in his own life that he doesn't see, but God sees. Realizes God loves him enough and is going to be gentle but firm enough to say, God, I'm, I'm giving you permission. Would, would you search my heart? And would, would then you try me? And would you reveal those things in me that I don't see, but, but you see that, that are wicked so that I can repent of those things and then you lead me in the way everlasting. And we're like, why in the world would you ever sign up for that? You know, that sounds so painful because the psalmist realizes that the way of everlasting is worth it. What's gonna happen is there's gonna be deeper fellowship with God. And it's probably going to lead to breakthroughs with relationships with people. Because now the blinders are off. I'm seeing God clearly. And now I'm able to see others more clearly and love in the way that God would intend. So two takeaways. The first is, what's the big picture of Romans 1, 2, and 3? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The reason that God lays this out in Romans chapter 2, we'll study it more this weekend, is so a person that's a moralist, a person that's religious, a person that from the world's standards that has their acts together is just as much in need of God's grace as, say, a tax collector whose, whose life is, is clearly in rebellion to God. 
And if you find yourself in that place where you said, I've always kind of had my act together and it's hard for me to realize that I'm a sinner, then Romans chapter two is written to humble us and cause us to realize it's not man's standard, it's not society's standard, it's God's standard and my heart is convicted before a holy God. So that's the first big takeaway. And then the second takeaway is if I'm in the habit of judging others, not the habit of identification for fruit that we talked about, but if I'm in the habit of having that David type of response of, man, they should die. They should really get it. Then we should go a little bit deeper and say, well, why am I acting this way? And am I accurately seeing sin in my own life? Because if I'm accurately seeing sin in my own life, it should lead to a spirit of meekness, a spirit of gentleness in the way that we approach one another for the purpose of restoration, not one of, of condemnation. This is why I get excited about this section of scripture. Because to me, if we allow the Holy Spirit to search us and know us, and we soften our hearts to the work of the Spirit in our lives, there's great freedom that's going to come in our relationship with the Lord. There's deeper fellowship that's going to come in our relationship with the Lord and restored and deeper relationships that are going to take place uh, with people. Every once in a while, you know, you get a sliver. You ever get a sliver and then imagine just how much pain that sliver can provide. It starts to get infected and then this nasty pus starts coming out of your finger and you're like, man, how in the world did this little sliver get in there and just cause so much destruction and damage? And at the heart of a dad, the heart of a parent is when one of our kids get a sliver when they're little, it's like, we got to get that out. Like that, that's got to come out because if that stays in there, it's just going to cause so much more, more damage. So, so we got to dig in there, right? We got to sterilize the needle and get in there and there's tears and it's painful but there's almost instant relief when that sliver comes out. You're like, oh, that feels, feels so much better. And our Heavenly Father knows that. And He cares for us and He loves us. And He's saying, Eric, that's got to come out of your heart. That, that, it's time. It's time to do that heart surgery. So as we come to communion tonight, let's allow God to do that heart surgery. Say, Lord, search me and know me. And as He identifies sin to confess that sin, to receive his forgiveness afresh, to remember that his body was broken, that his blood was shed so that we could be made whole. Because we don't want to walk around our Christian life with a big old plank coming out of our eye. Amen? All right, let's stand and pray together and we'll enter into communion. Father, we do thank you that you love us and that you desire holiness in our lives so that we can be closer to you and so relationships could be made whole. And God, we realize that there's blinders in our lives. There's blind spots that, that we just don't see, but you see. So God, we invite you tonight to search us, to know us, to try us, to see if there's any wicked way within us and lead us in the way of everlasting. Maybe tonight's the beginning of a process of you exposing things in our lives for this purpose of, of sanctification. God, we want to yield to that process. 
because we know the, the way of righteousness is worth it. It's going to lead to close relationship with you. It's, it's going to lead to your will and your plan uh, for our lives. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.